0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out org for more information. If you have a Bible, uh, we'll be in 2 Peter 1 today. <clears throat> 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. And um, as part of our Advent series today, we're in the issue of Love and uh, the series that we're in is what it means to be Christmas presents, to be the presence of these things of hope and peace and love and next week joy and then ultimately be the presence of Christ in people's lives. So we're going to be talking about love today from 2 Peter 1, 5 uh, through 11. Now I'll go on and tell you this will be a little bit different maybe than the other two because we're not just going to dwell on the teaching of love that's found in this passage, but on all that's around it, both preceding and afterwards, because what's what precedes Peter's uh, admonition to love here and, and what comes after his admonition to love here in this passage uh, are things that are equally important um, as, as just the issue of what it means to be the presence of love for people. So we have to kind of get all that right today uh, for it to make sense. Um, love, A- everybody wants it. Um, very few people probably know exactly what it feels like or exactly what it means, and we're bombarded, right, in all aspects of our world about what love means. From songs, Tina Turner said, what's love got to do with it? John Bon Jovi said, you give love a bad name. Dionne Warwick said, all the world needs now is love, sweet love. We have all these little sayings that we use, the course of true love never did run smooth, right? Right? you love something set it free if it comes back it was yours if it doesn't it never was love is friendship on fire love at first sight better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all we we filter through all this stuff in our lives of song titles and lyrics and quotations and little anecdotes and all the while most people were really searching for even Christians sometimes really searching for what is the real essence of, of love what does it really mean and so as we prepare to look at this today, what I, what I ask you to do is uh, to, just to kind of take a moment and, and, and tr- ask God to rid yourself of all that preconceived notion. Ask God to rid yourself of all that in- input and impact that the world often gives us. And as we talk today about what it means to be the presence of love for people, just let everything else fade away and let God's Word, the truth of His Word, Let the power and the presence of His Spirit in our lives in this place today really be what helps us accomplish understanding what it means to be the presence of love in people's lives. If you look at 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7, we're going to start there today uh, with our first segment. And Peter writes this, in view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. I've titled this first point or this first segment of your bulletin, you need to write the word cultivate. Cultivate your faith. Peter points back at the very beginning of the verse in view of all this. Well, what is it in view of? Well, it's his opening statements here, uh, really specifically verses 3 and 4, where he says things like, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life into verse 4 he said these are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So uh, what Peter is getting us into here in this section of verses 5 and following is in view of what God has done, in view of his great gifts, in view of his uh, enabling us to share in his divine nature, in view of that make every effort to respond. Now on on the the surface of that, we might look at that and think, well, Peter's telling us to work for our salvation, but he's not, and we're going to talk about that a couple of times as we go through today. Peter's never describing here a works-based salvation. He's never describing here that the effort we make is to somehow get God to love us more or somehow to get God to do more for us, but it's that we make these efforts, we work on this journey of spiritual maturity because of what God has already done for us. You don't earn any more love from God than what he has displayed in Jesus Christ. You don't earn any more grace from God than what has been displayed in the life of Christ through the cross and the resurrection. And so when he says make every effort, yes, he's describing a willingness. Yes, he's describing an an eagerness, a zealous nature to want to, to act or live. But it's not to earn something from God, it's to understand that that is evidence that we understand what God has indeed already done for us. And so I chose to cultivate, that we are to cultivate our faith, um, because the very idea of being born again is this, that God seeds us, S-E-E-D-S, He gives us a new seed of the Holy Spirit when we trust in Him by faith. You and I are not born again by being born the same with just some minor modifications. We are born again. And to be born again to new life requires uh, the very newness of a new seeding. Uh, The idea of the seed in the scriptures is very prevalent throughout both Old and New Testaments. I'm going to Talk a little bit about some of the Old Testament uses. But uh, in, in Jesus, when he teaches about the parable of the sower, some of you all are maybe are familiar with that. The sower goes and he scatters the seed. And in that parable, the seed represents God's word. And he scatters it all over in, in these four different type of soils, only one soil really being the, the soil that receives it and does something with it. But there the seed is the, is the word of God. Jesus elsewhere tells a parable, the mustard seed, if you have faith like the mustard seed, the tiniest of all seeds, and it's a parable, therefore, saying a seed represents uh, the measure of our faith. But then there are other places in Scripture where it takes on a more human type of an understanding, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving this speech to all those around him and he talks about Abraham's descendants. And the word that is used for descendants in verses 5 through 7 is literally the Greek word that means seed. In Galatians 3:29, Paul writes, "Now that you belong to Christ, he's writing to both Jew and Abraham, Now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. Again, the word children there literally meaning the word seed in 1st John 3 verse 9 those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life God's seed is in them and so when we are born again God literally reseeds us with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and so what we understand from seeds we live in a very, uh, agricultural sort of uh, uh, area of, uh, certainly within the New Testament times, it would have been a, a largely agricultural area. What people understood is that to plant a seed then requires cultivation for that seed to reach its full potential. Now, that's true. You can sometimes just scatter seeds and things grow. We, we had an unfortunate uh, pumpkin one year that just, we just kind of left outside after Halloween. Didn't really do anything with it. And uh, the next year, we had a pumpkin vine pop up because those seeds took root and we had a pumpkin vine. But... One thing that is about that story, we did not cultivate any of that vine, and those pumpkins did not reach their true potential because we didn't really want pumpkins. So we just kind of let it grow and mowed it up. Even a seed that is scattered and just kind of develops into a growth on itself needs cultivation to become what it needs to become. And so the effort that Peter says here is an effort that we make in view of what God has done to respond with eagerness, with a vitality, uh, with an urgent desire to, to respond to God's promises. And so we're going to kind of walk through this list very quickly here in verses 5 through 7, but follow along with me there. He says there in verse 5, supplement your faith. Some say supply your faith or add to your faith. But supplement to your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. Um, don't, be, don't be trapped here by seeing these English words, moral excellence, and think that that means we have to be good morally. Because again, that then kind of leads us to think, well, if I'm good morally, then God's pleased with me. This phrasing of moral excellence is talking about possessing or uh, displaying the excellence of God in our lives. If you look at verse 3 in this same chapter here, uh, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. So in in verse 3, Peter says, God is the one who possesses excellence. And then in verse 5, he says, add excellence to your faith. Why? Because God has given you his excellence. He's given you the ability to do what you need to do to uh, pursue this. Um, I, I'm sure I'm not unlike many parents who uh, sometimes when you open up the doors to your kid's room, you cringe a little because you see everything that's on the floor or well, what's supposed to be in the dresser is hanging off the edge of the bed or whatever else. And some of you may be like me. Sometimes I open that door and I cringe. And, and I don't necessarily cringe because it looks that way, but I cringe because I think, we have bought you stuff. We bought you Rubbermaid containers. We bought you totes. We, We purchased things that were just the right height to slide under your bed, to put your shoes in or your Legos in or whatever else. And so the frustration as a parent comes, we've provided you with everything you need to accomplish this. Now, they'll think with Peter's words what God must say. That in verses 3 and 4, again, Peter says he's given us everything we need to live a godly life. He's, he's invited us to share in his divine nature. And so I think God sometimes is, is looking at us, not in a critical, frustrating way, but just to say, I, I've given you everything that you need for this. I've given you the ability to add moral excellence, to live excellent in your life and add that, supplement that to your faith. He moves on, he says, to moral excellence we add knowledge. Here, knowledge is not just merely knowledge of facts, but it's an experiential knowledge. In other words, it's a knowledge that comes to us when it's something that we know becomes real in our lives. I'll just use an example, peace. We, we dealt with peace last Sunday, right? about being the presence of peace. And you can know about God's peace and you can read about God's peace and you can quote all the scripture verses about God's peace and how Jesus' peace is greater than the world and how Paul talks about being at peace and so on and so forth. But when do you really know peace? It's when you need it the most. You really know peace when you're in crisis. You really know peace when you're in dismay. You really know peace when you're looking in your life, at a segment of your life, and you go, I just, I don't know what else to do here. And God's peace comes flooding in. So what Peter is talking about here is not just having a head knowledge, but having experiential knowledge of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. He then moves on to add to, or to, add to knowledge self-control. Self control is listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but it might seem kind of like an oxymoron. Like, I'm supposed to be under control of the Spirit, but I'm supposed to have self control. And and the teaching behind it is this I have self control, meaning that I have control of myself, but I am not controlled by myself. The track with you? It's that I, I have self control of myself by the power and the provision of being controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. So I don't attempt to have self-control in areas of temptation, in areas of sin, in areas of fleshly, worldly desires. I don't attempt to have self-control there by my own power, but I have that self-control by the Spirit's power in my life. He says, add to that, add to self-control, patient endurance. There are two ways to become a disciple of Christ. You can crockpot it or you can microwave it. And I'm here to tell you, God is into crockpot discipleship. The journey of a disciple of Christ is a long journey, and you can typically spot people who microwave their discipleship a mile away, because their journey looks like this.! <laughs> But a person whose crockpot discipleship is showing is a journey that still has a, maybe has a little falter here and there, but it is one that is trending upwards all the time. Part of that is coming from patient endurance. This this is really the desire uh, that is to be grown in us. It's perseverance based on the promises of God. It's handling the pressures of our lives based on the promises of God and nothing else. It really kind of connects us back to week one of Advent of where is our hope fixed? When our hope is fixed in Jesus, when our hope is fixed in what is to come and not in this earthly world, we can develop patient endurance because we learn to understand whatever it is that I'm enduring now, I can be patient in it because it is nothing on the scope of eternity. My 60, 70, 80 years is not even a grain of salt on the scope of eternity. And so to my faith, to these things, I add patient endurance. To patient endurance, he says, add godliness. Godliness here, um, we might look at that word and think, well, that's got to do with our actions. And it does, sort of. But it's really a word that is tied and connected to worship that we live our lives in a godly fashion, meaning that we live our lives in a very worshipful fashion. It's similar to what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that the the, the sacrificing of our, our bodies, the, the, the clearing of our mind, the not being corrupted by the, the thoughts of the world becomes our spiritual act of worship. It just simply means that 24-7 we are striving to be in worship of God. Now, that doesn't mean praise and worship necessarily, although if you want to sing 24-7, I'm sure God doesn't mind God says he loves a joyful sound it doesn't have to be on key but it's really more just of understanding that we are living in a sense where we are continually our hearts are overwhelmed or we are continually in awe of worship of God and so to all that then culminates in this in in this understanding of love he says to godliness verse 7 and godliness with brotherly affection. Last week in 1 Peter 3 8, I talked about the phrase that Peter uses there called brotherly love. And I shared with you it was this uh, Greek word, elphos, which means that in the relationship you move from the love of a, of a friend to the love of a brother. You, look, you, you move from just loving someone as you might in a friendship way to loving someone as you might a brother or sister in your family. And so we talked about the importance of that, that when we see that kind of brotherly love being talked about in the scriptures within the body of Christ, that's what it's talking about. That our relationships in Christ are to trend from just being friends to being family. And he says to brotherly love add love for everyone godliness with brotherly affection verse seven brotherly affection with love for everyone this then becomes love that shows up in our lives that is for those who are outside the body of Christ you say well how, how, how can we make that jump how do we how do we know that one is inside the body and outside the body well quite simply just because of the words Peter uses Philadelphos is word that talks about the family of Christ, the body of Christ, a love that we have for one another. But here at the end of verse 7, when he says love for everyone, he uses that word that you may have heard before, agape, unmerited love, unwarranted love, love that involves sacrifice, love that involves devotion, Love that is given without expectation of anybody else giving anything back to you. This is love for those who are outside of the faith, outside of the body of Christ. How do we know this? Because of the way it's used in other places in Scripture. Romans 5.8, for example, Paul says this, But God showed his great love, agape, for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. The agape love that we're to have is the love that God has towards sinners in Christ. It's the love that God has towards those who don't yet know him. It's the love that God has for those who deny him. It's the God he ha- the love he has for those who flat out say he's a fable. He's a fairy tale. He's fiction. That is agape love developed in Christ. And so when Peter uses it, as others do through the New Testament as well, and they use that word agape in their, love, in their word for love, they're describing a love that adventures outside of the body of Christ. And so what I want you to see here is this progression of this cultivation of our faith. Jump back up to verse 5, if you will. Supplement your faith, or supply your faith, or add to your faith, whatever your translation says. That tells us two things. One, it says that it doesn't come automatically with our faith. Or if it does come automatically with our faith, it then is up to us to, under the power and provision of the Holy Spirit, to grow it. Two, again, it presents faith as the foundation But logically, if we follow it all the way through, supply or supplement your faith with moral excellence and excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The way Peter writes it here is you begin with a faith in Jesus, but as you spiritually mature, it culminates in a life of love. You want to say, how do I know If I'm spiritually maturing, how do I know if I'm growing in my faith? The answer back to that, or really the question back to that is, how are you loving? Are you loving the body of Christ with a brotherly affection? Are you loving others who are outside of the body of Christ with an agape love, with a love that God has for even those who dare not even think he's real? Love is the culmination, here Peter writes, of this spiritual maturity journey. And I, when I say culmination, I don't mean that, that it's one that we ever per- perfect this out of heaven or that when we get to that stage where we're loving pretty well, we can quit. But it, it's, it's the goal of it. We have this experiential knowledge, we have this understanding of self-control, this idea of worship to God, this idea of patiently enduring through all of this, and all of that culminates, Peter says, into a great love for the body of Christ and a great love for all people. And so when we talk today, as we talk today about what it means to be the presence of love with both brothers and sisters in Christ and with all people, understand what we're talking about is are we maturing? Are we growing? Are we, in view of all this, making every effort to supplement our faith with all of these things? One last thing before we move on. One thing, again, you notice with that progression is Peter builds upon each one. Add a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control and on and on. Meaning that you're not going to be able to love without adding moral excellence in your life. And you and I are not going to be able to live godly, worshipful lives without adding patient endurance. And we're not allowed to, we're not going to be adding uh, self-control in our lives without adding a knowledge that's experiential knowledge of who God is and what his word is. All of this is interconnected. We can't just jump to love or we can't just jump to self-control and say well I'll be self-controlled but these other things are going to lack they're all interconnected intertwined and necessary for our spiritual maturity journey verses 8 and 9 the second point today contemplate your faith we cultivate our faith we are to contemplate our faith look at verses 8 and 9 the more you grow like this the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting they've been cleansed from their older sins. I, I use the word contemplate here because the contemplate just means to to look at, to study, to with longevity and intently, uh, and with an intentionality to to focus on something. And so what what Peter does here is he, he in verse 9 he basically says those who fail to contemplate their faith they've forgotten that they've been cleansed from their old sins, they fail to grow. They fail to mature. They fail to be on this journey. And so the warning is very clear. In verse 8, the more you mature, the more you grow, the more you work in the spiritual maturity journey, he says, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, knowledge here being experienced. So the more you and I work through this cultivation, the more you and I grow and make every effort to do this, the more the knowledge of who Jesus is, the more useful and productive it will be not only to ourselves, but to people around us. It becomes a faith that really truly begins to be lived out. And so the idea here, again, is not of of a a decreasing line or an up-and-down kind of line, but of a continual moving upward trajectory of the disciple of Christ. The new birth that we get is not the finish line, but the beginning point. Yes, at new birth, we receive all of eternity. Yes, at the new birth, Jesus says, when you trust in him, you have eternal life. But nowhere in the scripture does it say, so in light of that, just hang out and do whatever you want. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say, now that you're saved, just kick back, enjoy life. Not a big deal not only in Peter's writing, but in Paul's writing and James' writing and and whoever wrote Hebrews and on and on and on. What they all say is because of what God has done for you, you're now to work. You're now to grow. You're now to mature. And so the the correlation here that Peter makes is the more you do this, the more productive you'll be. But the contrast to that is verse 9. But those who fail to develop have become short-sighted or blind. Some translations even say short sighted leading to blindness. Uh, literally, the word for short sighted or nearsighted, uh, maybe in your translation, is the word that if you go to the optometrist and they say you're nearsighted, it's the Greek word that means that. And so if you're nearsighted, you can see things up close, but anything far off is is blurry, out of focus. You can't really focus on anything. So from a spiritual point of view, to be nearsighted or short-sighted is to just focus on the here and now and never think about anything beyond it. It's to live life in the here and now. It's to live life for this moment. Man, is that not the message this world tries to give us today, isn't it? Just live for this moment. This moment's the only one that matters. You'll never be here again. And while there's truth to that, when you live in this moment, how you live is important. Some of you uh, are, are old enough to remember an athlete by the name of Lynn Bias, who came out of the University of Maryland in the mid-80s, 86, I believe. One of, one of I mean... One of the true guys in history that you could have looked at and said, He's, he could be as good as Michael, says Michael Jordan. And in living life in one moment on draft night, when he took his first hit of cocaine, his heart blew up and he died. Spiritual short-sightedness, spiritual nearsightedness is living as a Christian going, all that really matters is right now. For the Christian, this is never all that matters what matters next week and the month after that and the year after that and all the way up until we enter in the presence of God matters and so Peter basically is saying here that when we become nearsighted when we become short-sighted the temporary things of this world dominate us and when the temporary things of this world dominate us we do not grow we do not mature. He, he says it's short-sightedness or blindness. Blindness there is just simply the inability to, to understand or to, uh, to understand who, it is God, who God is and what he's doing. And this happens again, verse 9, because we do not contemplate our faith. Look again at verse 9. Those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind. You could actually enter the word here because they have forgotten they've been cleansed from their old sins. A Christian living nearsighted, a Christian living blind is a Christian for which the cross means very little to him or her. The Lord's Supper is just something we do once a month or once a quarter or however you practice it in your church. The resurrection, that's just Jesus coming back to life. It doesn't really mean anything about my new life. The indwelling Holy Spirit, oh, it, it's nice that God gave me that, but honestly, he's sometimes more of a bother than he is a blessing. This is the nearsighted, short-sighted, blind Christian who fails, to, who fails to remember what it is that God has done for him or her. And when you and I fail to remember, when you and I fail to contemplate, to think regularly, to be reminded of it regularly, we do not grow. Finally, verses 10 and 11. We cultivate our faith, we contemplate our faith, and then we confirm our faith. Verses 10 and 11. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you'll never fall away. And then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, if we're short-sighted, nearsighted, blind, we're not contemplating on these things, that becomes a dangerous journey for us. If you're you're nearsighted and you're trying to to walk a long distance... (laughs) You, you're blindedness. You're clouded with with, with 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 vision impairment. You're going to start bumping into things. You're going to start going off course. It's the very same thing spiritually. Spiritual vision problems prevent maturity. If we're not looking through the right lenses, and those being the lenses of the truth of God's word, the power and the presence of His Spirit, we do not grow. And so Peter states, "Work hard." Again, on the surface of this, it looks like Peter is saying, work hard so God will love you more. Work hard so you'll be saved greater. Work hard so you'll receive a blessing. But it's not. It's work hard to prove you're really among those God has called and chosen. It's to put that effort into it. Again, scripturally through the New Testament, this is not a, a, an idea that is unique to Peter. In in 2 Corinthians 13.5, as Paul begins to wrap up his writing to the Corinthian church, he says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. To the church at Philippi, in Philippians 2.12, Paul writes there, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. James, in his letter in 2.22, says, don't just listen to God's word, you must do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. Again, every New Testament writer writes this way. In view of what God has done, in light of what He's done, in view of His presence, of His Holy Spirit, of His gift of salvation, of the grace and mercy poured out through Jesus Christ, do these things, work at these things, get yourself on a spiritual journey of maturity where you're putting forth effort not to earn something else from God because you cannot God does not change the rules that he set in place. No one comes to the eternal eternal life by working for it. But when we acknowledge we've received it, when we're cultivating it, when we're contemplating it, we begin to confirm it. The spiritual maturity that you and I begin to show where we supplement our faith with excellence and knowledge and self-control and endurance and godliness and brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone, where we begin to do this, it begins to be evidence that we are saved. It begins to be evidence to a world that scoffs and mocks and doesn't believe that, oh, there must be something real because I see definitive change in them. And Peter states, you do these things and you'll never fall away. Now, some translations use the word stumble, and I think that's probably a little bit better of a translation understanding because when we see a phrase like fall away, sometimes we begin to think lose salvation, right? it's not what Peter's intent here is he's not saying do these things unless you want to lose your salvation because the entire context of this passage is about a person who has salvation by the very gift of God so if they didn't gain it in the first place they're not losing it by what they don't do but the context here is about maturity and so Peter's suggesting as you do this do these things so you don't stumble so you don't trip so you don't have a setback because the, the reality of it is anything in life that we seek uh, that we're on a journey on right that we're seeking some measure of maturity or some measure of perfection every time we have a stumble or a setback or or a falling away as he puts it with the new living it, it causes us to lose some ground doesn't it right January 1st, well, maybe not January 1st, January 2nd, everybody's going to go, I'm going to eat better. And for two days, we're going to eat vegetables and drink green tea and carrot juice. And then that third day, we're going to get up late for work and we're going to go, man, I really need a McDonald's greasy sausage and biscuit. And every little setback causes us a little problem, doesn't it? And, and, and what Peter's really saying here is not that setbacks move us out of the realm of God or move us out of the kingdom of God or move us out of his love. But what he's really saying here, and what all the writers are saying, Paul and James and others, with their writings that, are, that mimic this, is this God doesn't want you to have setbacks. God's desire is not for you and I to stumble. His desire is not for you and I to have moments where we fall away. His desire is that we are consistent in this. And again, I'm going back to the beginning of verse 5. In view of all this means God has given us everything to be able to do it. Because look at the assurance Peter gives, verse 11, end of verse 10. Do these things and you'll never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That grand entrance, I I want you to get this image for just a second. This grand entrance that he uses, that phrase that he uses, is, uh, is terminology that would have been an entrance given to athletes as they entered the arena for closing ceremonies after having been successful in whatever they'd done. So if you've ever seen the Olympics and and the closing ceremonies and all the athletes are coming back in and everybody's cheering and waving and clapping and like this is what Peter's saying. Do these things, progress on, cultivate, contemplate and confirm and then when you leave this world or when Jesus comes back, whatever happens first, when you do that, God gives you a grand entrance. You're going to split into eternity And the heavens are going to open up. And the witnesses are going to cheer. And the elders of heaven are going to applaud. And the Lamb is going to welcome you. That's what Peter is saying. God's desire is that you push forward in anticipation of that glorious moment. Now, lest we get it confused, that glorious moment then culminates with us hitting our knees before the Lamb of God and singing his praise forever. The grand entrance ends up being the grand expression of our faith to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, do these things, cultivate, contemplate, and confirm. If you and I want to be the presence of love to people, the presence of brotherly love to our brothers and sisters in Christ, the presence of agape love to those who are outside the faith, to those who are outside the body of Christ, you and I must commit to the journey of maturity. You know, I must commit to the things that Peter lists here and that Paul and others write about. We must commit to supplement our faith with knowledge and experience and wisdom and godliness and patient endurance and everything else because here's the reality. When we take on the spiritual personality of a child, which is what we do when we don't mature, what do do children do? They get mad when things don't go their way. What do children do? I'm going to take my ball and go home. We do not commit to maturity. We're never going to get to where we can fully be the presence of love. Now, every person in Christ starts out a spiritual child. But we are not to stay there. The scriptures make it clear. So let us mature let us progress, let us do the diligent work with the gifting of God's Spirit as our God and our power and the truth of God's Word as the foundation of our faith and let us become the presence of true love to both the church and to the world to confirm to them that we really belong to Him and to confirm to them that He indeed is real. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankford at gmail.com.